Tom Keylock first began working for the Rolling Stones in 1965 as Mick Jagger's chauffeur. By July 1969, when guitarist Brian Jones dies, his role has widened. He's now the band's official fixer. Nicknamed Mr. Get It Together, Tom's been there during some of guitarist Brian Jones's worst excesses and biggest screw-ups. It's his job to clear up the mess, to bribe the people that need bribing and hurry the boys away when things start to get sticky. At the time of his death, Brian Jones is no longer a member of the Stones, but the management likes to keep an eye on him. Perhaps they feel some responsibility for him. Or perhaps it's more that Brian is still capable of inflicting reputational damage on the band through his drug and alcohol excesses. And damage limitation is one of Tom's specialties. Still, there is no evidence that Tom Keylock was officially tasked with keeping an eye on Brian after he left the band. More likely, he put himself forward to take on that role. Maybe he had Brian's best interests at heart. Maybe his own. Perhaps there is some level of exploitation at play. Brian's wealth, coupled with his vulnerabilities as an addict, make him a soft target. One other thing you should know about Tom Keylock. He's got a brother high up in the CID at Scotland Yard. Detective Chief Inspector Frank Keylock. As for Brian Jones's relationship with Tom Keylock, it has never been an easy one. Maybe because he's always been the messiest and most chaotic of the Rolling Stones, the one most in need of cleaning up after. On one occasion, when Brian was still with the band, he complained to the management that Tom was keeping him prisoner. Tom claimed that he was only doing his job, protecting Brian from himself. But Tom can't be there babysitting Brian all the time. Perhaps that's why he installs an old school friend and drinking buddy in Brian's new country house, a North London builder named Frank Thorogood. Frank will be there at Brian's house on the night of his death. And according to the official version, Tom Keylock will not. But many years later, he will claim to be at Frank's hospital bedside when he hears his friend make a shocking confession. It was me that did Brian. Those are the words that Tom alleges Frank croaks out in November 1993. He presses Frank for details, but his friend collapses back in his bed, exhausted from the effort of unburdening his conscience. Tom promises to come back in a few days' time. But by then, Frank Thorogood will be dead. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a builder called Frank Thorogood, about the words he may have spoken as he lay dying. It's about the mysterious death of Brian Jones, guitarist with the Rolling Stones. It's about the demons that dragged him down, about his hope for a better life that ends in tragedy. It's about a quarrel over money that gets out of hand. It's about conspiracies and cover-ups. It's about the power of authority at war with the rebellious energy of youth. It's about people who know more than they say, 
about the greatest rock and roll mystery ever. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played Agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. It is Tom Keelock who first brings Frank Thorogood into the Rolling Stones' orbit, recommending him to do building work on guitarist Keith Richards' country house on the West Sussex coast. But things don't work out too well between Frank and Keith. It seems Keith Richards suspected Frank and his team of builders of stealing from him. Rather than fire Frank's crew, which is what you might expect to happen, Tom Keelock has his buddy transferred over to Brian Jones, who has just bought his own country retreat, Cotchford Farm, where he will live for just eight months before the night of his fatal swim. It's a bit of a cliche, the rock and roll star buying the big house in the country, but Cotchford Farm is a truly special place. The house itself is a sleepy red brick farmhouse dating from the middle of the 16th century. Hidden away in its own enchanted woods, the only way to get to it is along a single-track private road. There's an oak-paneled dining room. Ancient beams hold up the ceilings. The floorboards creak as you walk across them. And the smell of wood smoke lingers in every room, like the ghosts of all the fires that have been burnt by previous occupants. You'll find Cotchford Farm in the high weald of East Sussex a part of the English countryside that is today designated an area of outstanding natural beauty. It's a landscape of dense medieval woodlands, lush rolling hills, and dramatic sandstone outcrops. But if you really want to know what Cotchford Farm is like, think of the 100-acre wood from Winnie the Pooh. Because Cotchford Farm was once home to the author A.A. Milne. And it was here that he wrote his two books of Pooh stories, inspired by the woods that surrounded his house. There's even a statue of Christopher Robin in the garden. A photograph shows Brian Jones standing next to it, looking every bit as winsome and innocent as the little boy who was A.A. Milne's son. But there's another photograph of Jones, too, where he's posing with his legs stretched out in a high kick aimed at the statue, as if he means to topple it over and smash it. The two photographs sum up the two sides of Brian Jones, On the one hand, sweet, charming, and sensitive. On the other, provocative and destructive. It's a toxic combination. Whenever he creates something good and worthwhile, his instinct is always to tear it down. 
Brian Jones buys Cotchford Farm while he's still in the band, back in November 1968. There's every sign he has a genuine emotional connection with his new home. He originally meant it as a weekend getaway. But after a couple of visits, he moves in permanently. It offers him more than just somewhere to live. It is a retreat from the excesses and troubles of life in London. Troubles that include two arrests for drug possession, the most recent in May 1968, when he narrowly escapes a jail sentence. Perhaps related to his drug usage, Brian Jones is also suffering from mental health problems. In 1967, while undergoing a period of rehab at the Priory Nursing Home after a nervous breakdown, he is diagnosed with paranoia by psychiatrists. Brian comes to Cotchford Farm to escape from professional troubles, too. An old injury in his wrist is affecting his ability to play the guitar. He sustained it back in 1966 when he swung a punch at his then-girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, and hit an iron window frame instead. The broken wrist has never quite healed. In the meantime, Pallenberg, arguably the love of his life, has left Brian for his fellow Rolling Stone, Keith Richards. That doesn't help ease the tension in the band. Brian is increasingly dissatisfied with the musical direction the Stones are taking. The band are playing more and more original songs written by Mick and Keith. Brian is dismissive of the songs. He's a blues purist and wants the band to focus on classic covers, reinventing the music of his heroes, artists like Muddy Waters, Jimmy Reed, and Elmore James. He no longer feels central to the group he founded. He frequently misses rehearsals and recordings, and when he does turn up, he's often not in a fit state to play. On top of that, the Stones are planning a tour of America, but Brian won't be going with them. Because of his drug conviction, he can't get a visa for the States. The Stones book a replacement guitarist, Mick Taylor. Tensions come to a head when Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Stones drummer Charlie Watts visit Brian Jones at Cotchford Farm on June 8, 1969. That's about a month before Brian's death. They've come to tell him that he's fired. The Rolling Stones, the band he founded and named, will be rolling on without him. To soften the blow, the other Stones offer Brian a generous settlement. A lump sum of 100,000 pounds. The equivalent today of nearly $2 million. They also offer him 20,000 pounds a year for as long as the Stones stay together. That's more than enough to support his rock and roll lifestyle. When the Stones' business manager, Alan Klein, hears of the settlement, he can't believe his ears. The straight-talking New Yorker tells Jagger and Richards, you must be crazy paying him all that money. There must be a better solution than that. Surely we can work something else out. But it's too late for that. The agreement has been made. The Stones are committed to paying Brian Jones a fortune, basically for doing nothing. Brian's move to Cotchford Farm is a chance for a fresh start. It's a return to a happier, more innocent time. It almost seems like an attempt to recapture his childhood. Brian's relationship with his parents has not been easy for many years. Not since he got his first girlfriend pregnant when he was 16. It doesn't help that in their eyes, he's never really had a proper job, or that he didn't go to university, or that he plays electric guitar in a rock and roll band, no matter that it's one of the biggest rock and roll bands in the world. 
His parents always wanted him to be a classical musician. Basically, Brian's parents have never approved of his choices. Cotchford Farm is a way of earning their approval at last. He can't wait to show it off to them. In the meantime, there's work to be done on the house, which is where Frank Thorogood comes into the story. When Tom Keylock helps him transfer to Cotchford Farm, Frank Thorogood puts in an estimate of around 10,000 pounds for the alteration Brian wants done. Brian accepts, and Frank moves into the apartment over the garage. He's not alone. He brings with him his team of builders. Right from the start, it seems that the builders are less than conscientious, more interested in partying than working. And like Frank, they entertain a string of girlfriends, all at Brian's expense. Locals Mary Hallett and Michael Martin, who Brian has taken on as his housekeeper and gardener, watch the goings-on and don't like what they see. I knew that they weren't real builders, Mary is on record as saying. Her mistrust doesn't go unnoticed. They didn't like me around. It unnerved them. If they saw me coming down the path, I would hear them say, Quick, Mrs. Hallett is coming. According to gardener Michael Martin, Brian had been too easygoing and had not paid enough attention to what was going on. He started to have his say, but he sort of still half-trusted them. He couldn't see that things were getting well out of hand. They were taking outrageous liberties. One of Frank's builders, a guy called Mo Tucker, even threatened to beat Martin up if he said anything. The work drags on. According to Anna Wallen, Brian's girlfriend at the time, Brian Jones is well aware that Thoroughgood and his cronies are taking advantage of him. There are confrontations. Brian accuses the builders of just sitting around doing nothing. It all comes to a head on the Sunday before Brian's death. Brian and Anna are alone in the kitchen. They start arguing. Brian pushes Anna to the floor. In Anna's words, the next second, one of the beams in the ceiling collapsed with a loud crash. It landed an inch from my head. If Brian hadn't pushed me, the beam would have fallen out on my head and probably killed me. For Brian Jones, it's the last straw. In a heated argument, Brian accuses Frank of trying to kill him. Frank offers to repair the beam, but tells Brian it will cost him. Brian snaps and tells Frank he's fired. Without telling Frank, Brian contacts the accountants who are paying Frank and his men and orders them not to hand over any more money. Meanwhile, Frank's thinking Brian will calm down and things can carry on as normal, but he'll soon find out it's too late for that. The routine is that Frank drives to the accountants in London every Wednesday to collect his workman's wages from the previous week in cash. Every Wednesday, until now that is. This week, when Frank presents himself at the accountant's office for the cash as usual, they have nothing for him. There are smirks and sniggers. Obviously, everyone's been talking about how Brian is stopping the money. Frank is humiliated. Worse than that, he has nothing to pay his men with. It seems that Brian has carried through on his threat. Maybe Frank should have expected it. But what about the men's wages? And why didn't Brian tell him he was doing this and save him the journey? Frank is fuming. And when he gets back to Cotchford Farm that evening, there's a furious row. The way Frank sees it, Brian still owes him 8,000 pounds for the work he has already done. This is despite the fact that Brian has already paid him 18,000 pounds 
the equivalent of over 250,000 pounds, or nearly $350,000 today. Bear in mind that Frank's original estimate was for 10,000 pounds. Brian tries to calm things down by offering a severance fee, as long as Frank and his builders are gone the next day. And despite this being the end of the road, Brian doesn't want any bad feelings between them. That's why, that night, he wants to make it up with Frank, leave on a high note. That evening, the two couples dine together, though the atmosphere is understandably tense. After dinner, Brian goes out of his way to invite Frank and Janet for drinks. According to Anna Wallen, he says to Frank, I'm not mad at you anymore. I just want you to understand me. What if the beam had hit Anna? What if she died? You understand why I was upset, don't you? But Frank is seething with resentment. To try and lift his spirits, Brian suggests they go for a swim. Before we get to that final fatal dip in the pool, there's another side of Brian Jones and Frank Thorogood's relationship that needs exploring. 30 years later, Anna Wallen will write how she often witnessed Jones play sadistic mind games with Thorogood, taunting him and embarrassing him. Tell me you want Anna, Brian goads him on one occasion. I want Anna, Frank replies. You can't have her, Brian takes pleasure in telling him. When Anna challenges him on why he does this, he replies that he just wants Frank to know his place. This goading continues tonight in the pool. It even gets physical. Brian, himself a strong swimmer, has a nasty habit of grabbing other people's ankles and pulling them under. He does it to Frank and has a good laugh at his expense when he comes up struggling for air. Frank starts to retaliate. The horseplay in the pool gets rough. And it's now that Janet calls Anna inside to take a phone call. Moments later, Frank gets out of the pool and goes into the kitchen. And his hand shakes uncontrollably as he tries to light a cigarette. Moments after that, Brian Jones is found lifeless at the bottom of his own swimming pool. The question is, did Frank in some way cause Brian's death? He certainly had grievances against Brian, but did they amount to a motive for murder? Neither of the other two witnesses present at Cotchford Farm that night make any such allegation, or at least not at the time. According to the coroner's report, Brian Jones's death was accidental. But Frank's apparent deathbed confession, confirmed in a signed legal declaration made by Tom Keylock in 1993, casts doubt on this. 24 years later, in 1993, Frank Thorogood is admitted to the North Middlesex Hospital in North London. Now an elderly man, he's suffering from heart and kidney disease. His health is deteriorating rapidly. He gets his daughter, Jan, to call Uncle Tom, as the family knows Tom Keylock, to ask him to visit him in hospital. There is an urgency to this appeal. The urgency of a dying man. Tom rushes to Frank's bedside, where he is shocked by his friend's frail appearance. Frank tells Tom that he wants to put his house in order and beckons for Tom to lean in. 
there's something I have to tell you, he says, his voice faint, but his eyes staring with a fixed intensity. It will probably shock you, but we've been friends for so many years that I feel I can tell you. It is now that Frank confides he killed Brian. When Tom presses him for details, all he will say is, well, I just finally snapped. It just happened. That's all there is to it. Frank makes Tom promise that he will keep it to himself until after his death. The following day, Frank's daughter rings Tom to tell him that Frank has passed away in his sleep. Soon after, Tom Keylock makes a formal signed affidavit, the contents of which rip the case wide open. In his affidavit, Tom Keylock states that a dying Frank Thorogood confessed to him that he physically held Brian Jones underwater in the pool at Cotchford Farm, causing his death. So, is that it? Is the mystery of Brian Jones's death finally solved? If Tom Keylock is to be believed, then yes. But remember, he is the only witness to Frank's apparent deathbed confession. Naturally, Frank's daughter Jan refuses to believe it. Although, she does admit that her father appeared relieved by Tom's visit and was significantly calmer afterwards. But why should Tom Keylock make it up? What possible motive could he have for inventing another man's deathbed confession? None at all, unless he himself had something to hide. So, let's unpack this. For years, Tom Keylock will maintain that he was not there at Cotchford Farm when Brian Jones dies. Although, he does admit to being present at the house later, after the alarm has been raised. But what if Tom is there all along? What if he is there at the very moment Brian dies? It's a big departure from the official version of events. So the question becomes, is there any evidence to back it up? The simple answer is yes. That evening, two friends of Brian called Nicholas Fitzgerald and Richard Cadbury are drinking at a bar in Hayward's Heath, a little less than 20 miles away. When the bar closes at 10.30 p.m., they decide to drop in on their party-loving friend. As Fitzgerald puts it, it was always open house at Brian's. They arrive at Cotford Lane, the private road leading to the farmhouse, at around 11.15. But the lane is blocked by a car. The two men get out of their own car and start walking towards the house, which is ominously silent. They exchange a nervous glance. This is not like Brian. Usually at this time of night, there's a party in full swing. The music would be blaring, much to the annoyance of his neighbors. Suddenly, a man Fitzgerald describes as burly and wearing glasses appears in front of them, blocking their way. In his statement to Sussex police, Fitzgerald explicitly names this man as being Tom Keylock. According to Fitzgerald, Tom lays hands on him and snarls at him. Get out of here, Fitzgerald, or you'll be next. If Fitzgerald is to be believed, and for some people that is a big if, this not only places Tom at Cotchford Farm earlier than he claims, it also brings forward the time of Brian Jones's death. The wording of the threat clearly implies that something violent has already happened at the farm. 
the emergency call is logged at around midnight. According to Fitzgerald, he and Cadbury are rudely turned away from the house about 45 minutes earlier. Why does it take so long to call an ambulance? Before we answer that question, let's ask another. Can we be sure that the mysterious man who accosts Fitzgerald and Cadbury really is Tom Keylock? It is dark, after all. The fact is, we don't have to rely on Fitzgerald's word alone. There's someone else who confirms Tom Keylock's presence at Cotchford Farm when Brian Jones dies. Tom Keylock himself. In 2009, at the age of 83, a silver-haired and ailing Tom Keylock records an interview with the music journalist Terry Rawlings, who has spent years investigating Brian Jones' death. At one point in the interview, Tom looks straight into the camera lens and says, Of course I was at Cotchford Farm. Where else do you think I was then? I was there, and that's why I know the truth. But does this statement mean that he was there at the time of Brian's death? That's certainly how Rawlings understood it. For him, it has the force of a revelation. Tom is telling him something new and significant. It seems to be an admission that he was there when Brian died. He was there. That's why he knows the truth. He would not say that if he was piecing together what happened from other people's accounts told to him after the event. At the time of this interview, Tom was about to go into the hospital for tests. He had suffered a stroke the previous year. A few months later, he will be dead. So, although this is not exactly a deathbed confession, perhaps he saw the interview as his last chance to set the record straight. Of course, if this admission is true, it calls into doubt Tom's claim to have heard Frank Thorogood's deathbed confession. Because if he had been there when Frank Thorogood killed Brian Jones, there would have been no need for Frank to tell him about it. No need to confess anything. And if Tom is there that night, why for so many years has he denied it? He could at any point have come forward and said, this is what I saw happen. Tom Keylock and the Stones part company in 1971. The man who takes over from him as tour manager, Sam Cutler, claims that he knows the reason for Tom's silence. In a 2009 Reuters article, he raises the possibility that Tom Keylock himself was Brian's murderer. Cutler also reveals that Alan Klein, the Rolling Stones' business manager, long suspected Tom Keylock. Klein even hired a private detective to look into it. We can only assume no evidence was found. A more mundane and frankly more credible motive is provided by Janet Lawson, the nurse who was staying at Cotchford Farm at the time of Brian's death. In an interview with the producer of the Brian Jones biopic Stoned, she reveals, in a gasp-inducing plot twist, that her married lover in 1969 was not Frank Thorogood, as had previously been assumed. It was, in fact, Tom Keylock. It seems Tom had the builder take the rap for his own secret extramarital affair with Janet. In return for what, we might ask? Maybe in return for Tom helping to cover up the truth about Brian's death. It's an intriguing speculation. As we find over and over again with this case, nobody tells the whole truth at one telling. Little snippets of what might be the truth emerge slowly over time. 
For one thing, it seems likely that there were more people at the house that night than just Brian Jones, Frank Thorogood, Anna Wallen, and Janet Lawson. This is inadvertently confirmed by the senior police officer investigating Brian Jones' death, DCI Marshall. In a letter written about the case, he lets the following slip out, clearly contradicting the official version of events. On the evening in question, Jones was at the farmhouse together with six or so associates. And another policeman, P.C. Evans, the first officer on the scene, is on record saying, There were many people there, more than a dozen or so during the period before the Sussex CID officers arrived, all coming to look at the body beside the pool. Who are these people? And were they there when Brian died? Did they see what happened or just turn up afterwards? It seems clear that some of those present could have been Frank Thorogood's builders. A Sussex drug squad officer searching the property recalls bumping into a group of men who introduced themselves as builders. So why is the presence of these other people kept out of the official account? Let's take one more look at the events of that night. This time, keeping in mind the possibility that there could have been more people at Cotchford Farm than previously admitted. If we accept the timeline suggested by Nicholas Fitzgerald's version of events, Brian Jones is already dead by 11.15 when Fitzgerald and his friend Richard Cadbury arrive at Cotchford Farm. Possibly he died much earlier than that, because it looks like a cleanup operation is already underway, with the end of the lane blocked off by a car and a heavily built bespectacled man patrolling the grounds. But the ambulance is not called until after midnight. Why? Let's go with the theory that Tom Keelock is already there and has taken charge of things. Janet Lawson, a registered nurse, has confirmed that Brian is dead. There's no pulse. They don't need an ambulance. They need a master in damage control. Remember the band's nickname for Tom Keelock, Mr. Get It Together? Remember too that Tom has a brother who is a very high-ranking officer in London's Metropolitan Police Force. Is it unreasonable to speculate that the first call he places after Brian's death is to his brother? If so, is it also possible that Tom's brother, DCI Frank Keylock, advises exactly what to do to hush the affair up? But why should he do that? The answer to that question may be provided by a person who has not yet entered the story, but who has an intimate connection with Frank Thorogood, his former mistress. In 1994, the BBC airs an episode of their primetime show, Crime Watch. Prompted by Frank Thorogood's alleged deathbed confession, it features a segment on the Brian Jones case. The segment is not meant entirely seriously, more as a piece of entertainment. But it prompts a number of people to call in, including a woman called Joan Fitzsimmons. In 1969, Joan Fitzsimmons is a young 20-something, working as a driver for the Rolling Stones. In particular, Brian Jones. She gets to know Brian well, and through him, Frank Thorogood. The two of them start a brief on-off affair. 25 years later, Joan Fitzsimmons calls the producer of Crime Watch and tells him that back in the day, her next-door neighbor was a man called Mo Tucker, who you will remember as one of Frank Thorogood's builders. The guy who once threatened to beat up Brian Jones's gardener. 
Joan now reveals that Mo Tucker was in fact a police informant at the time. What would a police informant be doing working at the home of a former Rolling Stone, you might ask? Remember that Frank and his builders had previously been working on Keith Richards' country home, Redlands? Well, we know that Mo Tucker had been part of the team back then, and that he had been working there at the time of an infamous drugs bust that took place in February 1967. The raid leads to the arrest of both Keith Richards and Mick Jagger for drug offenses. When the case comes to court in June that year, Mick is sentenced to three months imprisonment for possession of amphetamines, while Keith receives a one-year custodial sentence for allowing cannabis to be smoked on his property. The sentences are seen as a huge overreaction. The judge clearly wants to make an example of the two Rolling Stones. But despite the judge's intentions, Mick and Keith only have to spend one night in jail. They land bail the next day. Eventually, their convictions are quashed on appeal. Keith Richards is convinced that the police had help from someone inside the house. And in his book, Who Killed Christopher Robin? The Murder of a Rolling Stone, author Terry Rawlings claims to have seen evidence of an undercover operative helping to set up the Redlands raid, a police informant named Mo Tucker. From the police point of view, the raid was ultimately a failure, with Jagger and Richards evading justice. It's not inconceivable that they shift their sights to an easier target, Brian Jones. In that case, it's perfectly reasonable that they would want a man inside Cotchford Farm keeping an eye on the comings and goings. And if Mo Tucker is there the night Brian Jones dies, that would be reason enough for a cover-up. To keep a police informant out of a murder inquiry. That could also be the reason why the police at the time were so keen to present a version of events in which there are only three people involved. It will also explain why the first local police officer on the scene, Constable Evans, reports seeing officers who were not from Sussex CID. In fact, he didn't know where they had come from and what they were doing there. Could these be DCI Frank Keylock's men, sent to close the investigation down and stop the local police asking too many questions? When Evans raises his suspicions with his superiors that Frank Thorogood was responsible in some way for Brian Jones's death, he is effectively told to drop it. Even Tom Keylock, that most unreliable of narrators, confirms the cover-up in the interview he gives to Terry Rawlings shortly before his own death. The reason I know it's a cover-up is because my brother said, you won't get no further, just forget it. They've made a decision. It was accidental death. I think the police wanted to make a manslaughter charge, but they was just told to forget it because we're not interested. Let's take a moment to parse that statement. Yes, he's implying that he had no involvement in any cover-up himself. But he is admitting that there was a cover-up. And he's also hinting that his brother was involved. Perhaps most shocking of all is the suggestion that some of the police investigating the case felt there were sufficient grounds to bring at least a manslaughter charge against Frank Thorogood. And yet were persuaded by a higher authority to do nothing. It could be argued that to present Brian Jones as a victim of his own addictions and failings, another drug-addled rock star killed by excess, suits the establishment's narrative better than the alternative. That he is the victim of a homicidal attack, one committed in the presence of an undercover police operative, namely Mo Tucker. It's messy to say the least. 
The likelihood is that we will never know for sure what happened that night at Cotchford Farm. As Keith Richards put it, the only cat I could ask was the one I think got rid of everybody and did the whole disappearing trick so that when the cops arrived, it looked like it was just an accident. The cat he is talking about is without doubt the man he calls Mr. Get It Together, Tom Keylock, the guy who got Frank the Gig at Brian Jones's house in the first place. The day after Brian's death, Tom Keylock is seen presiding over the builders as they load up an open truck with Brian's possessions. They even drive off with the front gate and the iron railings from the garden. They probably see this as some kind of compensation for their unpaid wages. That's not all. Tom Keylock lights a huge bonfire in the middle of the garden and orders Brian's distraught gardener, Michael Martin, to help him throw Brian's clothes onto it. Frank Thorogood joins them with piles of Brian's books, also destined for the flames. When he cynically tosses Brian's copy of the Bible into the fire, it's too much for Martin, who reaches in to snatch it back. Tom Keylock will claim that he was only carrying out Brian's father's wishes in burning Brian's clothes. Given the deep disapproval, hatred even, that Brian's parents had of their son's chosen lifestyle, this does ring true. Even so, Tom is unduly quick to comply. It's as if he wants to obliterate all trace of Brian and minimize his memory. When housekeeper Mary Hallett ventures into the house on that somber, quiet morning, she can't help noticing that many of Brian's valuable possessions are missing. She opens cupboard door after cupboard door to find them all emptied. It is now, numb with shock, that she hears the builder's truck drive away. Brian Jones is buried in Cheltenham, his hometown, on July 10th, 1969. Frank Thorogood and Tom Keylock attend the funeral. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards do not. It will be 24 years before Frank Thorogood supposedly makes his deathbed confession. Another 16 years will pass until 2009, when investigative journalist Scott Jones will claim to have found new evidence definitely proving that Brian Jones was killed as a result of a fight with Frank Thorogood. This is based mainly on his interviews with Anna Wallen and Janet Lawson, some of which we have referred to in this podcast. Jones also alleges that police officers covered up the true cause of Brian's death. He passes his evidence on to Sussex police but no further action is taken. As recently as March 2019, Sussex Police released a statement. The death of Brian Jones was investigated in 1969 and was also the subject of two reviews by Sussex Police in 1984 and 1994. From time to time over the past 49 years, Sussex Police have also received messages or reports from journalists and other individuals about the death. Each is considered on its individual merits and reviewed wherever appropriate. No such report has been received since 2010 and no new evidence has emerged to suggest that the coroner's original verdict was incorrect. The case has not been reopened and there are no plans for that to happen. The statement is intended to put an end to the rumor, speculation, and conspiracy theories around Brian Jones's death. But questions still remain unanswered. The sense of a cover-up will not go away. 
The death of one talented but deeply troubled man continues to send ripples far beyond the pool where he drowned. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We dive deep into the decades-long mystery of the Alcatraz prison escape and the mysterious letter from a dying man that might finally solve it. We'll travel back to the year 1962, when prisoners Frank Morris and John and Clarence Anglin achieved the impossible, when they disappeared from America's most notorious prison. The FBI says they couldn't have possibly made it out alive. But one man's apparent deathbed confession says they most certainly did and live to old age. Could three two-bit criminals really have bested one of the most powerful law agencies in the world for over half a century? The answer, some very credible sources believe, is absolutely yes. For more information on Frank Thorogood and the death of Brian Jones, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brian Jones, Who Killed Christopher Robin, The Final Truth by Terry Rawlings, The Murder of Brian Jones by Anna Wallen, and the works of investigative journalist Scott Jones particularly helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Edited by Rob Plummer. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink and Matias Torresole. Mix master by Keon Ryan Morgan. Mm-hmm.